Good morning. When's the last time you saw a really great movie? Oh, wow, recently. I got to be honest, I've seen one great movie in the last five years, probably in the last two weeks. And I want to be really clear, I hate movies. I don't like them. I don't have time for them. I don't need any more drama in my life. But I have a wife who loves movies, and I love my wife. So through a pretty significant argument, we ended up going to the movies, and it was unbelievable, this movie I saw. It was transformational. Even in my own life, the content, the storyline, the action, and the acting, it was unbelievable. You know what I did? The next day, literally every person I interacted with, I told them about this movie. And I didn't really trust that I was doing justice, so I didn't just tell them about the movie and that they needed to go see it. I spent upwards of 20 or 30 minutes telling them the actual movie because I didn't think I was actually going to get them to go see it. And then that night, as I came home, I started thinking about the joy and excitement I had over this movie, and it was sad, and it was based on a true story. And I thought to myself, Am I ever that excited about the wondrous works that God is currently doing in my life? And I'm, am I explaining that to any person that I interact with the next day? I think about it even in my own family. When was the last time I came home? I have two little girls, Violet and Rosalie, who are 9 and 10. When have I come home and said, I have got to tell you what God has been teaching me in his word? Well, this morning, we're going to look at a book, Jude, a letter written by Jude, who tells us and encourages us, exhorts us to contend earnestly for the faith in an evil culture that not only hates truth, they hate God's word, they hate God, but actually that evilness even infiltrates the church. And this morning, I'm encouraged to hopefully bring encouragement to you as we dive into a passage. Before we do that, I want to look at a survey that Ligonier Ministries did along with Lifeway in 2022. Some of you may be familiar with this survey. They called it the State of the Church. And they conducted a survey across the United States where they asked, they made specific statements, and whoever took the survey either, e survey either agreed or disagreed with those statements. They even got as granular as having these statements go, go into those who call themselves evangelicals. As we get started, I want to look at four specific statements and where the evangelical church fell. Here's statement number four. Quote, God learns and adapts to different circumstances. God learns and adapts to different circumstances. In the U.S., in the evangelical church, according to those that took this survey, 48% agree with that statement. They don't adhere to what God tells Malachi in chapter 3, I, the Lord, do not change. Right Or what the author of Hebrews says, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and yes, forever. One of every two, according to this survey, believe God changes. Here's statement number 15. 
everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Within the evangelical community, 65% of the people that took this survey agree with that statement. Two of every three people in evangelical America agree that you are born innocent. You realize that's contrary to what God's word teaches us. Paul wrote a magnificent work called Romans where he deals with the wages of sin or death. The psalmist says there is none righteous, no, not one. We can go all the way back to Moses in Genesis when he talks to Noah after he comes out of the ark and he says, men are evil even from their youth. Here's statement number three. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Within the evangelical community, one of every two people, 56% that took this survey, agree that God accepts the worships of all religions, including two that do not recognize Jesus Christ, first as God and second as the coming Messiah. They don't adhere to what Christ says and is quoted in John when he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Who comes to the Father? No one comes to the Father except through me. Here's statement number seven. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Would it surprise you if 43% of evangelicals who were polled agree with that statement? You realize this is not a new issue. In 326 in Rome, when Constantine was emperor, he aggregated a group of people to specifically fight this heresy. Quote, he grouped them together to resolve a problem that had sprung up seven years earlier and had left the Christian church so fiercely divided. A presbyter, Arius, began publicly proclaiming his theory that Jesus was not God at all, only a celestial servant of the true most high God. Many of you might not recognize this history, but this is where we arrived at the Nicene Creed. A couple hundred years later, we refer to it as the Apostles' Creed through some specific changes. You see, Paul warned Timothy in his second letter. He says this, A time will come when they, the congregants, will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from truth and will turn aside to myths. This is exactly why a few verses later in that same chapter, Paul charges Timothy church to do what? He charges them to preach the word in season and out of season. Truly, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, this issue didn't start with the great preachers of our day. It didn't start with the reformers of yesterday. This has been an issue since the very beginning of the early church, shortly after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And thankfully, the book of Jude we're going to look at this morning is going to encourage us and teach us how to uh, contend earnestly for the faith. He's going to help us understand how do we approach a world or even a church culture that suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Because 
the evilness of the world that hates God, hates his word, and hates truth infiltrates the church and fills pulpits just like this every Sunday in America. Well, if, if you would, would you turn to Jude? It's the second to the last letter or book in the New Testament, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Between 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelations is where it falls. Let me pray for us as we open God's word, and then we will dive in. Lord God, we are grateful for your word, for in it, Lord, you teach us what you have done for us. You teach us what you are doing for us, and you teach us what you will do for us. Father, we are so grateful that your spirit indwells those who call you Savior. I pray, Father, that even your word this morning would speak to us, church, and we are grateful that your scripture teaches us, it rebukes us, it reproves us, it instructs us, and may that be the case as we leave into an evil culture. Father God, may we be the light that shines in the darkness and shows the love that you have granted us that we did not deserve to those around us. Amen. Let me share with you Martin Luther's sentiment. There's a book called Martin Luther's Table Talk, which is an aggregation of his students. He used to teach at his house and around everywhere, and his students aggregated this. This is what he says about the gospel in an evil culture that hates truth. He says this, the preached gospel is offensive in all places of the world, rejected and condemned. If the gospel did not offend and anger citizen or countryman, prince or bishop, then it would be a fine and acceptable preaching. Might, it might as well also be tolerated, and people would willingly hear and receive it. But seeing it is a kind of preaching which makes people angry, especially the great and powerful and deep learned ones of the world, great courage is necessary, and the Holy Ghost to those who intend to preach it. So as we turn to Jude, if you haven't found it yet, we're going to look at Jude verses 1 through 4. It's a single chapter as we see it in our New Testament. It's a letter that only consists of 25 verses, and it is an outline on how we contend earnestly for the gospel or for the faith even inside the church. You see, it is about contending for the faith, which is the fact that Jesus Christ, who was fully God, begotten of God, came to earth, born of a virgin. He then lived a perfect life. He said he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He then was crucified, where church, we have to understand the wrath of God that we deserved was poured out on him. He was dead and buried. He resurrected on the third day where he imputes us or gifts us his righteousness. He now has ascended to the Father where he sits at the right hand of the Father and he intercedes for me and you. Amen. Amen. So let's look at verses 1 through 4 together. I will read, follow along with me. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. 
Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So as we get started through these first four verses, what I want to do is I want to set the stage contextually. We're going to look at three things. I'm going to try and pack three specific things. We're going to look at the authorship of the letter. We're going to look at the audience of who the author is writing to, and then we're going to look at this thesis statement. Sound good? All right, let's do it. Let's look at the authorship. Now, we can obviously gather some information or some cues from the first couple of verses about the authorship. Jude is a believer who is called by God, and his brother's name is James. Now, this specific Greek name can get translated Judah or Judas, which has created some speculation and conversation in Christian communities about who actually is this author. This morning, we're arriving that Jude is, in fact, the brother of James and the half-brother of Jesus. We also garner from the first verse here that Jude is a believer who describes himself as a bondservant. Before we digest the magnitude of that specific statement, I want to first look at Jude and James with some cues we find in Scripture about when their conversion maybe took place. So I know we just got to Jude. Would you flip to John chapter 7 with me? We're going to look at three different passages that give us a little bit of a clue of their conversion, and I promise it makes sense when we look at the fact that Jude refers to himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. John chapter 7, if you're still finding it, let me at least set the stage. Jesus was walking in Galilee. He was avoiding Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. His brothers come to him, his half-brothers come to him and say, hey, you should go by way of Judea. Do some miraculous things. Show your disciples who you actually are. This is setting the stage for this narrative. John chapter 7, I'm going to pick up in verse 1. And after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea, Judea that your disciples also may behold your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And pay attention to verse 5 right here. What's it say? For not even his brothers were believing in him. You see, at this point in time, Jesus responds to his half-brothers that are challenging him, and he says, my time has not yet come to reveal to the world who I am. But that verse 5 gives us an indication that his brothers did not believe that he was the Messiah. You see, at this point in time, Jesus is between the ages of 30 and 33. See how I narrowed that down? Between the ages of 30 and 33. He has begun his public ministry, and even after so many years, his brothers did not believe that he was the coming Messiah. See, let, let's picture this real quick. 
they grew up with Joseph and Mary, right? They grew up with Joseph and Mary, and you have to imagine that Joseph and Mary constantly told them about the wondrous works of God. The, the angels that were, that were singing in the sky, glory, the shepherds that showed up. How about the magi that showed up a few years later to give gifts to Jesus? The star of Bethlehem. You have to imagine that Mary and Joseph were telling their children these stories. And yet, Jude, as we can see, by the time Jesus was 30, he was not a believer that Jesus Christ, his half-brother, was actually the coming Messiah. Flip forward to, with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Let's look at another, another quick passage. This passage is not specifically about either James or John, but it will give us some insight. This is during the crucifixion. Jesus says this. Um, I'm sorry, uh, John 19.25, it says this. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. But there were standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus, therefore, saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to, to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. You see, at this point in time, Jesus Christ gave his believing disciple whom he loved, John, the care of his believing mother, Mary. He did not leave the care of his mother in his brother's hands. Okay, all of you flip back to Jude. Jude chapter 1. I'm going to read one more passage in 1 Corinthians, which gives us a little bit of insight. We're not going to be able to nail down exactly when Jude came to faith. But I want to give us a little bit of insight that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 15, listen, listen here. For I delivered to you as of first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture, that he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Let's stop here real quick. Paul is making a defense to the church in Corinth. He's writing them a corrective letter, and he's saying, hey, there are actual people who saw Jesus Christ resurrected. He's giving them proof. And then he makes this really interesting statement. He says, then he appeared to James. Then all the apostles, and last of all, as if it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me, Paul, also. Using James's conversion as inference, we at least know that Jude became a believer in Jesus Christ as the Messiah more than likely after his death. And you're looking at me going, okay, why did we just take that walk? It matters because in the first six words of Jude's letter, he describes himself this way. He says he is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He says Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Jude is proclaiming his willingness to be enslaved to his half-brother, Jesus 
Christ. Can we stop here for a second? I just want to be really clear. If Jesus was my half-brother, you realize that would be my subscript, right? Like, Justin, half-brother of Jesus, like kind of a big deal. You would think so, right? Jude is saying, no, no, no. I am willing to give up my own will and desire to follow the will and desire of Jesus Christ, my Messiah. Because that bondservant term in Greek is doulos, which is more than likely not an uncommon word that we're unfamiliar with. It means slave, right? It means to give up your own will and to willingly give your will to someone else. You see, Jesus taught this in Matthew 16. He said, if anyone wishes to come after me, what must he do, church? He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Can we, can we like, let that sink in for a second? It might not seem like a big deal, but you have to understand, Jude is the half-brother of Jesus Christ who grew up in the home of Mary and Joseph. He heard all of the stories of the miraculous works of God and did not believe that his half-brother was, in fact, the coming Messiah until after his resurrection. He writes a letter to a church of believers to tell them to contend earnestly for the faith, but he introduces himself as a slave to Jesus Christ. And so the question remains, do people around us know that we are slaves to Jesus Christ. You know, I gave the example at the beginning where I couldn't help but tell everybody about this movie I saw, and yet, do my neighbors know, as Paul says to the church in 1 Corinthians, I desire to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The question is, do your kids know that? Are you even excited about that when you explain that to them? Do your neighbors know that? I got to be honest, I was looking in the mirror asking myself that question as well. So that at least gives us some clues on the author. Let's jump to the audience quickly. The audience, we're going to spend a little, a brief time here on the audience, and then as we jump through the verses, we'll get a much, in, uh, a much greater in-depth study of the audience. But first, we understand Jude's audience are those who believe in the gospel message of Jesus Christ. In verse 3, he refers to them as beloved. Follow along with me in verse 3. He says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. Stop there. Jude wanted to write a different letter. Right? He wanted to write a letter of encouragement. He wanted to write a letter of rejoicing. But then he was compelled to appeal to them to contend earnestly for the faith. So at least we know the audience is made up of believers. Not only that, their common salvation means they actually knew the gospel. So he's writing to believers who know the true gospel and are in the context or setting of a church body of some sort. Third, let's look at the thesis. So we looked at the authorship, the audience. Let's, let's take a look at the thesis. We find that thesis in verse 3 where I stopped. He says, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude desire, desires each of us to struggle on behalf of the faith. Jude exhorts us all to follow his leadership as a willing slave where we, we remove our own will and desire. We align it with the person and work of Jesus Christ in our life. 
He wanted to write them a letter of their common salvation, which we have, but then he impressed upon them that they appeal instead, that they contend earnestly. And here's the irony of Jude's message. He does not tell us to contend for the faith by correcting each heresy that comes into the church. He rather depicts the fruit of the infiltrators by teaching us or gifting us the ability to recognize, decipher, and exercise discernment on the actions of those who have snuck in. Jude also instructs us believers who hold fast to the true gospel to act in a manner worthy of that faith. You see, Jude uses his letter to show the disparaging differences between a true believer in church and a faker. And sometimes that faker is right here in the pulpit. Jude is admonishing us all to have discernment and contend earnestly. So as we work through these first four verses, we're going to look at three specific topics that I see in it. Okay, verses one and two, we're going to look at the believer's position we're going to be reminded of what God has done in our life. The believer's position two in verse number three, we're going to look at the believer's exhortation. The believer's exhortation. And in verse four, we're going to look at the believer's warning. Specifically, it's a warning for discernment. So verses one and two, believer's position. Verse three, the believer's exhortation. And verse four, the believer's warning. Let's look at the believer's position. After his introduction, much like many New Testament writers, Jude starts to depict what God has done for us. It's a similar fashion that a lot of New Testament writers write with. Specifically, Paul does this in a ton of his letters. He does it in 1st, 2nd Corinthians. He does it in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians as well, where he outlines who we are because of the work that God has done in our lives. And oftentimes when we read these intros, we kind of gloss over them, right? I do that. We gloss over them. But there is so much depth in this. Read verse 1 with me. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, the beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Can we stop here for a second? I need to ask this. Why is it important that we remember the work of God in our lives. You see, the gospel starts with God. It does not start with us. This word that we study is about God. It's where God reveals himself to us. It's where he tells us and shows us what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. It is not about us. That's why when we come to God's word, we don't start first with application we learn who God is, and in sight of that, just like Jude outlines, he's a bondservant of Christ. He has this, this desire to give up his own will. We then can apply only after we recognize who God is, what he's done, what he is doing, and what he will do in the future. And Jude reminds the reader that the ground at Calvary is level. You see, there is no difference between us and the heretic who's in the church other than the person and work of Jesus Christ in our life. We have nothing to boast about except, as Paul says, Jesus Christ and him crucified. So let's look at these three verbs in the first verse. Jude says that we are called, 
we are beloved and we are kept. Like I said, it's easy to gloss over an introduction, but these are pretty important verbs. So let's look at them. What does it mean to be called? It means to be invited into the banquet. Invited to the banquet, excuse me. It means to be invited to the banquet. What does it mean to be beloved? It means to be welcomed in. So not only are we invited, we're actually welcomed in, and then Jude uses the term kept. Well, kept means that we are guarded and secured forever. So a true believer is, is in, uh, they're invited. They're then welcomed, and then once they're in, they're, rem- they're kept or remain secure. Jude is saying this about believers in the first verse. So let's put this together. A willing slave is first invited. They are welcomed, and then they are guarded for eternity because no one can take us out of the hands of God. You see, this banquet language is not new. Jesus used it in Matthew 22. When he says, there's a wedding feast, and you're welcomed in, and we're given new garments that are white, and we're made pure, and those who are not invited are cast away. And if we have a miraculous change of heart that only through the person and work of Jesus Christ has been to, he says, our lives need to be marked by something And Jude continues that in verse 2. He says, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. You see, Jude offers mercy, peace, and love in abundance and more, which means they already have it. You see, a true believer's life is one marked by mercy, peace, and love. In fact, these are inherent characteristics that Jesus Christ outlines in the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes as marks of a true believer someone who is merciful, peaceable, and loving. So believers are called, they are beloved, they are kept. Would you jump down to verse 4 with me? We're going to jump ahead really quick. I want to show you what the opposition looks like. I want to show you what the opposition looks like. Verse 4 says this, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Can we look at the difference? Look, believers are invited to the banquet, they are welcomed in, and they are kept secure. And what Jude does is he outlines that certain people have what? They've snuck in, they've crept in, they weren't invited. They weren't welcomed in. And what do we know? Long beforehand, they were marked out for condemnation. They are not kept. They are not secure. And this is what their lives look like. They're ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. These people show the exact opposite in their lives as they are not willing to give up their own will and desire to follow the will and desire of Jesus Christ in their life. Jude spends the rest of the book outlining the differences between these two groups of people, which is a same topic that his brother James talks about in James chapter 4. Remember, you're you're only uh, one of two people. 
You're either a friend of the world and an enemy of God, or you are a friend of God and an enemy of the world. And that's, what, that, that's the irony that his brother is giving the same message in his letter in the book of James. So we looked at the believer's position in verses 1 and 2. Let's look at the believer's exhortation in verse 3. Follow along with me. Beloved, those welcomed in, believers, while I was making every, right, uh, every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. You see, this is the thesis that we already talked about that Jude is writing and impressing upon us, but I want you to understand this article before the term faith. What's the article, church? It's the. You know what that means? It's exclusive. There's only one. In deference to the statistics I mentioned at the beginning, where two of every three evangelicals in America say that God accepts worship from all different religions, Jude is saying there is one, and it's the faith. And so the question remains, church, how do we contend earnestly for the faith? Some of this is assumed in Jude's writing to whom he's writing to. This morning, I want to take a step back and look at probably what they already know because they have a common salvation. They understand what the faith is. But I want to give us three helpful hints, even inside the church, what we can do to contend earnestly for the faith. Here's number one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read all three, and then we'll go through them quickly. Number one, we need to know the faith. It's apparent in that study that we looked at, people inside the evangelical church today don't know the faith. We need to know the faith. Second, we need to communicate that faith clearly. You can't communicate something if you don't know anything about it. And third, we need to live a life worthy of that faith. We need to know the faith or know the gospel. We need to communicate that faith clearly, and we need to live a life worthy of that faith. The truth and assumption from Jude's letter, as I mentioned, is that he's writing to believers who already know the gospel. Remember, he wanted to write them a letter about their common salvation and pivoted and started communicating to them how they live out the gospel and how those who don't truly love Jesus Christ live out the gospel. You see, it's not a new challenge. God told Moses back in Deuteronomy 6, which probably most of us are familiar with, we refer to it as the great Shema. Listen and obey. And what does God tell Moses? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he tells Moses, hey, that love, it translates into action. That's why God continues to tell Moses in Deuteronomy 6 to teach it and live it out in every aspect and every hour of your life. So first and foremost, we must know the faith to be able to contend with it. Second, we must be able to communicate the faith. The church needs to be willing to stand against the current of our culture by clearly communicating the gospel. We need to stand up the true gospel consistently here at Stonebridge Bible Church. Can I personalize a little bit? You need to contend for the faith. I need to contend for the faith in my own home with my children. Many of you have older children that are going to go off to university soon. And maybe some of them are going to go to a quote-unquote Christian university. I got some bad news. 
that's worse than a public university, in my opinion. Because it's going to teach them a false gospel rather than actually teaching them any gospel at all. You need to contend for the faith inside your home with your kids. You need to be excited about what God is doing for you and through the word of God. Not only that, we need to teach our spouses. Not our children, our spouses. How about our neighbors and friends? We need to be excited about what God is doing and clearly communicate the gospel. Third, we need to live a life representing God's word. You see, in Matthew 22, Jesus deals with this. He actually deals with it by quoting Deuteronomy 6. You see, the Sadducees come to him, and they start to ask him questions, not because they want answers. They just want to challenge him, right? And in verse 35 of chapter 22, a lawyer comes to him and says this, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And you know what Moses, or I'm sorry, you know what Jesus does? He answers with Deuteronomy 6. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. And then he says this, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law. The entire scripture can be summed up in those two commandments. Love God and love others. Can I be clear about something? You are not loving others if you do not speak truth. That is unloving to not speak truth. It sounds familiar with what Jude's doing. Look at me in verse 3 right here. Jude says this, pick up in the middle of the verse, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. It's the summing up of the whole faith. Flip forward with me. Look at verse 20. If it's on a separate page, flip. Look at verse 20 and follow along. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in what? The love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. We are to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then Jude says the exact same thing as Jesus. He says, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some, have mercy with fear, hating even the garments polluted by the flesh. So we've looked at the believer's position, the believer's exhortation. Can we look at the believer's warning quickly? The believer's warning for discernment. Verse 4, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord. You see, Jude is warning that ungodly people will infiltrate the church and trample on the name of Jesus Christ. Even sometimes up here. It's the same warning that Jesus gives when he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them, church, by their what? Their fruits. This is exactly what Jude is saying. That's why Jude doesn't go after each heresy, because guess what? Once you counter a heresy, you know what comes up next? Another heresy. Jude says, you will know these people by their fruits. It's the same thing that Jesus, our Lord, says, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? 
Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. This is a warning to believers, and I would be remiss if I don't explain the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for those who are not in Christ. You see, God, who is the creator, is the rule giver. And if he's the rule giver, he's the judge. But guess what? The judge is the only one that can redeem us because he is the only one that can declare us righteous. You see, Jesus Christ, begotten of God, was born of a virgin and came to this earth living a perfect and spotless life. He was crucified where the wrath of God was poured out on him. He was dead and buried where we should have been. He was resurrected, brought newness to life to us, imputed us his righteousness, and sits at the Father where he sits at the right hand of the Father where he declares us righteous. And you realize he works through us so that we can repent and believe. And this morning, if there is someone in here who does not know Christ, Jesus Christ says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Second, there's some in this room who, who love Christ and are battling the flesh daily. And maybe you feel as though you're losing that battle more than winning it. Well, praise be to God. He gives us the Holy Spirit who works through us, and I want to encourage you using God's word specifically as encouragement. You know, this battle is real. Me and Johnny talked this week specifically about what Paul writes in Ephesians, that the battle is real, and that's why we have to put on the full armor of God, right? When I was 18 years old, uh, most of you know my parents, my mother and father. Um, my dad knew God's word. My dad communicate, communicated God's word clearly to me, and my dad lived God's word. And when I was 18 years old, this will be really surprising for most of you, I, I struggled with authority. I struggled with a lot of things. I still do. Struggled with authority. And my father would sit us down. I remember one day we were working through something. He's sitting at the table with his Bible, and he says, Justin, come sit with me. I sit with him. He opens the word to Hebrews, and he says, you know the right thing to do. You are choosing not to do it. You are trampling on the name of the Lord. And it is a dangerous place to fall into the hands of a living God. You don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with God. And he got up and left. He left me a piece of paper when I was 18 years old, and I still have it to this day. I'm 40. That's 22 years later. I laminated this last year so I don't lose it. And at the top of it, it says, deal thoroughly with sin. So for those of us in this room who are battling the flesh daily and you feel like you're losing, can I encourage you with God's word? Let me read a couple verses over you. You see, Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. He says, God did not call us to be unpure, but to live a holy life. God is faithful if we confess our sins, John says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us, says the psalmist. Here's a Proverbs that a proverb that my mom would say to us often, which was also on what my father gave me. For those of you that are battling, listen, though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again, but the wicked are brought down by calamity. Jude wants to do the same thing in verse 24. Would you follow along with me as we look at the bookend of this letter? Jude verse 24, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Listen, church, this is not about you mustering up enough will to do it. Jude is saying right here at the beginning of his letter, look what Christ did. He invited you, he welcomed you in, and you are secured. And now you know what he says? He says this, he is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory you know, I have little children, and, and when we sing, sometimes their heads are on a swivel, right? And they're looking over your head. And sometimes I have to grab their neck, and I'm just like, look at the screen. Just look at the screen, right? Listen, God, through the work of Jesus, says he makes you stand in the presence. Not because he's correcting us, but because he upholds us. And Jude finishes with this. In the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. I, out of my own experience, Martin Luther says, am able to witness that Jesus Christ is the true God. I know full well and have found what the name of Jesus had done for me. I have often been so near death that I thought, verily, now I must die because I teach his word to the wicked world and acknowledge him. But always he mercifully put life into me, refreshed and comforted me. Therefore, let us use diligence only to keep him, and then all is safe. Although the devil were ever so wicked and crafty and the world ever so evil and false, let whatsoever will or can befall me, I will surely cleave by my sweet Savior, Jesus Christ. For in him am I baptized. I can neither do nor know anything, but only what he has taught me. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are grateful for your word. Lord, we're thankful for in it, Lord, you teach us. You convict us through the work of your spirit. We learn first and foremost who you are. For those of us here, Lord, may we remember what you have done on our behalf, what you are doing in our life, and what you will do securing us in the future. Father, may Stonebridge Bible Church be a beacon of light in a culture that seemingly hates truth, hates your word, and hates you. May we stand firm. Father, may we be a church made up of families that do the same, that earnestly contend for the faith inside our homes. May we as fathers and grandfathers and men, Lord, be in your word and know the faith. May we, Lord, because of our love for you, love our neighbors and teach them the faith. 
May we be a church, Lord, that ushers more people into salvation because we recognize what you've done, what you will do, and because of that, we rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen.